Welcome to episode 83 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, fathers play such a critical role in helping their children discover and love the outdoors. And today we celebrate and honor fathers for their role in family adventures. Then on today's top five list, we spotlight the father of our national parks. Next on Ready for Adventure, we plan a backpacking trip along the Batona Trail in New Jersey. For today's Backpack Hack of the Week, we'll share a hack that is totally gross, but it works. And we'll wrap up the show with a little trail wisdom from not John Muir. He already gets a turn on the top five list. All this, and that's about it, today on the first 40 miles. As our first 40 milers know, Josh and I have been wanting to dabble in the world of interviews a little bit and include more, more stories from other people, kind of get their voices on the show. So today we've invited one of our Twitter friends. His name is Hiking Dad and his Twitter handle is at Dad Hikes. And he does have a real name too, but we'll get to that. Anyway, we wanted to include him on the show today because we wanted to focus on fathers and someone with that Twitter handle Dad hikes. We got to include him. So here we go. So welcome to the show, Sean. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for getting with us today. So you are Hiking Dad on Twitter. You want to kind of explain to us how you chose that Twitter name and, you know, what your thoughts were behind it? Yeah, sure. I, uh, well, say about a year ago, I had decided to get back into hiking more seriously. It, it's always been something I we had done in the past. You know, growing up, I did a lot of hiking, backpacking, camping all the time. And so I figured if I gave myself a name like Hiking Dad, I would have to maybe stay a little more engaged with doing it. Yeah. And you've done a great job of connecting with like-minded people. And you're right. It it keeps it on your mind, you know, yeah. as, as you think about, well, what can I share? Have I been out this week? You know, uh, am I getting out there? And what can I share with people? It really is about getting kind of getting the kids out into the woods, you know, nowadays with social media and the prevalence of screens everywhere. I think if I, I left my kids to their own device, they would sit on the couch for 24 hours and never look up from their little tiny <laughs> screens. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, you know, just getting people outside and realizing what the natural world really is. It's kind of amazing if if you look outside, there's living things all around that we take for granted every day. You've got birds overhead that's, oh, there's just a bird. Well, there's thousands and thousands of different species and varieties of birds. You know, it's it's fun to look and you can tell your kids the difference or explain how this bird does that or there's different animals to look for. It's a really rich world out there when you start noticing the different uh, the different varieties and you can start naming them. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we we bought one of those little uh, birds of the Northwest. It's like a little I'd say it's a trifold. It's more than a trifold. And we have bird feeders and, you know, stuff outside the front window. And sometimes during dinner, something will fly up and the kids are like, Dad, what is that? And, you know, we, we take it hiking with us, too. And so we'll pull it out and they're like, well, what is that? 
it looks like this, but I don't think it's that. And then it gives them something, if they do need to go on the computer, hey, maybe look up that bird. Yeah, I've noticed that with plants too. Like you can be hiking down a trail and you are surrounded by plants. And if you don't know what those plants are, you just think, oh, plants, you know, oh, we're surrounded by trees, whatever. And if you start studying them and you start recognizing the different varieties and species that are out there, then they start to stick out to you. You know, you go down the trail and, and all of a sudden it's not just, oh, plants, it's there's an Oregon white oak tree. And, you know, here's a, Himalayan blackberries. We've got lots of those. <laughs> uh, but you start recognizing all the features of these different plants that are out there. And, and like you say, with the animals, same thing. And it just, it opens up your view to something that you were seeing the whole time, but not really, not really seeing. Yeah, it's interesting. I've experienced this kind of feeling of it sounds weird, but like a plant is my friend. You know, when I can identify it and I can be like, oh, I know exactly what that is. It's familiar. And it's like, oh, I'm out here with my friends. And maybe your kids feel that way about birds. You know, when they see a bird that they know exactly what it is, they're like, oh, there's, you know, something familiar, something, something I know. It's my friend. Well, yeah, we, we did that early on with the kids. Well, you know, we'd walk through and just basic tree identification, you know, uh, there's a western red cedar or there's a hemlock or, you know, a pine, just simple trees. And we'd walk through and I'm like, hey, kiddo, what's that? Uh, I, th I think it's this. Yeah, great job. As a kid, I'd go hiking in Mount Rainier up in uh, Paradise a lot. We'd go probably a dozen times a year hiking. And one year we hit it prime time with the wildflowers. And it was it was like going to a brand new park. It was amazing, the color and just the variety and you know, some plants we learned, the one's nickname is a dirty sock. <laughs> and when you smell it, it smells like a dirty sock. You know, as a kid growing up, you think all flowers smell great. And I'll blame it as being a kid, but occasionally you'd pick a flower and you kind of shove it up by the behind the neck uh, on the, the backpack of your dad or your brother. And a few minutes later, you'd, you'd hear, you know, who, who did that? But, it's, it's, you know, it's it's things like that that I just, you know, whether the kids... Whether they grow to love it or it's just kind of something that's in the back of their mind, I, I want them to realize that, you know, they can have a great time being in the woods without an electronic device. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you had a great dad and you have, you said you had a brother that you went hiking with too. Would you consider them to be your mentors? Like, were they the ones that kind of showed you the ropes? Oh, my dad was for sure. We grew up camping a lot. We, you know, we didn't take maybe a lot of big vacations, but I spent a good portion of my childhood camping at Mount Rainier. We'd stay at Cougar Rock Campground to the point to where the the rangers would notice me growing every year. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they knew me by name and I kind of ran that campground. <laughs> I volunteered, you know, quite a few summers up there just helping them plant wildflowers and doing restoration where they were changing trails or where people had you know, cut switchbacks, doing, you know, minor trail maintenance. But it was, you know, thanks to my dad, my, you know, my mom and my dad, you know, taking us there and him teaching me hiking and looking at animal tracks and just, you know, kind of enjoying being outdoors. Even though you put dirty socks behind his ear. Yeah. Sounds like a great dad. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I learned that trick from him. Classic. <laughs> yeah. So Sean is hiking dad on Twitter. The, the actual Twitter handle is uh, dad hikes. 
So if you go to twitter.com slash dadhikes or look up at dadhikes, you'll find them there. I love your tagline, Sean, trying to pass on a love of the outdoors to my kids. That's what it's all about. And that's you do a really good job of sharing from that perspective uh, the things that you share on Twitter. It's really cool. Uh, we'll also put a link to Dad Hikes in uh, today's show notes. Well, thanks for chatting with us today, Sean. Thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. For today's top five list, the top five quotable gems from the father of the national parks from his book, Our National Parks. Who is the father of our national parks? John Muir. We meet again, John. Yeah, we've heard from him quite a bit. <laughs> yes. Now, this top five list was so much fun to put together because this guy, he is a character. I mean, he is almost larger than life, like Picos Bill or... Yeah, know. he kind of becomes a, a Davy Crockett or a Paul Bunyan. Yes. I think Davy Crockett was a real person, though. Yeah, but... He was inflated. Inflated, yeah. Yeah, he is definitely one of those type of people. But just the quotes were too many and too good to include all of them. So we kind of just picked five... <laughs> Almost random quotes, but they're so good. I mean, you really can do that. You can take your finger and point anywhere in anything that he's written and find something that's just either really deep or really descriptive or a wild story. It's good, good writing. Perhaps one of his most famous quotes is this one that says, Thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home that wilderness is a necessity. But today, we're going to share some of the lesser-known things that he wrote. And these all come from his book, Our National Parks, which is doubly cool because this is the 100-year anniversary of our national parks. And it's Father's Day week. So, got the father of our national parks. So the number one quotable gem from John Muir from the book Our National Parks talks about his bear encounter. He said, when I discovered him, he was standing in a narrow strip of meadow, and I was concealed behind a tree on the side of it. After studying this appearance as he stood at rest, I rushed toward him to frighten him that I might study his gait in running. But contrary to all I had heard about the shyness of bears, he did not run at all. And when I stopped short within a few steps of him as he held his ground in a fighting attitude, my mistake was monstrously plain. I was then put on my good behavior and never afterward forgot the right manners of the wilderness. Wow. <laughs> and we were chatting before we started recording today uh, about this question that we think about once in a while of if you could go hiking with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? And, and wow, John Muir. And then you said, maybe I wouldn't go hiking with John Muir. <laughs> Maybe I would I'm go, guessing this is why. I would go day hiking with him. I think that would be very lovely. But uh, being in deep wilderness in the backcountry with a guy who charges bears, <laughs> he sounds like a loose cannon. Keep in mind, he only charged a bear once. That's true. He learned quickly. It was all in the name of science, though. You got to appreciate that. He wanted to see what the bear would do and study his gait. That's, that's some dedication to science. The second quote from John Muir is about wildness. He said, None of nature's landscapes are ugly so long as they are wild. But he added a word of warning. He said, 
But the continent's outer beauty is fast passing away, especially the plant part of it, the most destructible and most universally charming of all. It's an interesting combination of ideas. On the one hand, the idea that if you let any area just go wild, go back to nature, it will naturally be beautiful and interesting and, and have a diversity of life. But, you know, when we go hiking here um, in Western Oregon, many of the plants that we see are, in fact, not native plants. All up and down the trails and the roads, we have Himalaya blackberries. And boy, I wonder, they're an invasive species. But when August comes around, <laughs> mm, I love those blackberries. I mean, we just go out and pick them. They're just wild growing on fence lines and along roads and everything. And and uh, so I don't know what to think. <laughs> well, I'd like to focus on the first part of the quote, because sometimes we talk about wanting to take trips that have these great vistas or something that government officials have deemed worthy of seeing, you know, like the Grand Canyon or the arches in Utah. And these places are visually stunning. But John Muir says that no landscapes, none of nature's landscapes are ugly as long as they're wild. And so I think he's saying to appreciate all the beauty that's around us, whether it's categorized as a national park or whether it's just a trail a few miles from your home. There's still benefit in both. And another thought that this quote brings to me is that uh, I think as people, we're always trying to improve our surroundings. So we're always looking to, you know, renovate the house or upgrade the car or whatever it might be. And he's really saying, when you head out into the wilderness, you don't need to do that. You can just enjoy what is already naturally beautiful. The number three quotable gem from John Muir from his book, Our National Parks, is about the force of nature. Nature is incredibly powerful, and he captured that with his words so beautifully. He said, We see nature working with enthusiasm like a man, blowing her volcanic forges like a blacksmith blowing his smithy fires shoving glaciers over the landscapes like a carpenter shoving his planes, clearing, plowing, harrowing, irrigating, planting, and sowing broadcast like a farmer and gardener, doing rough work and fine work, planting sequoias and pines, rose bushes and daisies, working in gems, filling every crack and hollow with them, distilling fine essences, painting plants and shells, clouds, mountains, all the earth and heavens like an artist, ever working toward beauty, higher and higher. I think that's interesting that you just brought up the point of how we as humans are always trying to improve our surroundings, and maybe we get that desire from our own creator that it's something he's always doing with the landscape and the flowers and all these things that John Muir talked about, that those things are always aspiring to greater and greater beauty. Well, we know that the Sierras were John Muir's beloved home. And speaking of Yosemite and the Sierras, here's the fourth quote from John Muir. Benevolent, solemn, fateful, pervaded with divine light, Every landscape glows like a countenance hallowed in eternal repose. That was a little couplet there. It was. That was beautiful. 
And it seems to be a perfect description of some of the photos I've seen of Yosemite. You see those pictures of uh, Half Dome with that soft glow of the evening light on it. He just, he captured it perfectly in words. Yeah, in fact, John Muir has such a way of writing that makes you feel like you're either right there or makes you want to be right there. The number five quotable gem from John Muir's book, Our National Parks, talks about the benefits of being stealth. And he must have learned this skill as he spent more time in nature, because obviously the very first quote about his bear encounter was the complete opposite of being stealth. But this is what he said about being sneaky in the forest. The trees, they say, are fine, but the empty stillness is deadly. There are no animals to be seen, no birds. We have not heard a song in all the woods. And no wonder. They go in large parties with mules and horses. They make a great noise. They are dressed in outlandish, unnatural colors. Every animal shuns them. Even the frightened pines would run away if they could. But nature lovers, devout, silent, open-eyed, looking and listening with love, find no lack of inhabitants in these mountain mansions, and they come to them gladly. This statement's really powerful. I love those times when I can get outdoors and just get off on my own and be quiet. And it's amazing how as you settle down and get quiet, the rest of nature starts to come to life around you. Yeah, there's a great lesson in this quote, that if you're out on a backpacking trip and you wonder, why aren't we seeing any activity, any, you know, why aren't we hearing birds or seeing little animals or big animals? Maybe it's time to turn down the volume a little bit and practice being stealth like John Muir did. On one of our backpacking trips, we had uh, one person in our group who usually trailed a little further behind the rest of the group. And then we would kind of stop and wait, wait for him to catch up, make sure everything was uh, okay. And I remember a point where someone in the kind of the the big part of the group of us commented how quiet it had been in terms of uh, like, we didn't really see any animals, not even birds. We didn't hear any birds. And he had a totally different experience than the rest of us because he was just by himself being quiet, hiking along gently, and he heard birds, he saw animals. You know, he experienced things that the rest of us in that big group all talking with each other. I mean, we thought, where'd the birds go? They, they don't exist. So lesson learned, John Muir was right. So Josh and I have kind of been the Costco sample ladies from this book, Our National Parks. We've just given you a little piece of bacon with a toothpick in it. And there is so much more. You could bring home an entire five pound package of this stuff. And this book, Our National Parks, is free. So if you want the full five pound package of bacon, the book Our National Parks is free online and you can find so many more treasures in this book. It's it's just a delight and a joy to read. And we'll put a link in today's show notes. Today we're doing another Ready for Adventure segment, which occasionally we swap in for Summit Gear Review. This Ready for Adventure segment is going to be about the Batona Trail in the state of New Jersey. Batona, B-A-T-O-N-A, stands for 
Back to nature. Clever. Uh, yeah, yeah, those New <laughs> Jerseyans are clever. I think it was Philadelphians, actually, that came up with it. In, like in 1928, Philadelphians were meeting together uh, to hike. It was a hiking club. And somehow they were able to name this trail, the Batona Trail. I don't know the connection, but... Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Those clever Philadelphians. Yeah. <laughs> gave us the Constitution and everything. Right. Yeah. And the Batona Trail, yeah, apparently, Batona in trail. New Jersey. <laughs> uh, it's a 53 and a half mile trail in the state of New Jersey. So, Heather, you did a bunch of research to figure out the Batona Trail, to find a spot in, in New Jersey, and to learn about this trail and how you might prepare for a backpacking trip here. Why New Jersey? Yeah, it does seem kind of random, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it's funny. Politically, New Jersey has been on my radar. The governor of New Jersey has gotten a lot of airtime on TV. And so, you know, there have been some unkind things said about New Jersey, not just this election season, but in the past. So I wanted to find something beautiful that would help me appreciate the state of New Jersey and get to know the Garden State a little better. I mean, it's called the Garden State for crying out loud. There's something special there. I know there is. Um, the other reason that I picked this trail was because for our last Ready for Adventure, we picked an area that went through the swamps of South Carolina, which is not an easy area. There's so many perils in that area. And so it was a challenging hike. And so I wanted to pick something that was more like a walk in a park. So does New Jersey live up to its moniker, the Garden State? Yes. In fact, along this trail, you will find bearberries, tea berries, huckleberries, blackberries, cranberries, and blueberries. So I would say, yes, this is a very ecologically rich and diverse area. Even though it's kind of sparsely planted, the trees are pretty spread out. Um, still, you'll find some really fascinating things here. One of the cool things that you'll be able to find on this trail, and I'm not sure really the season on these plants, but you'll be able to find carnivorous plants. On this trail, you should be able to find sundews, pitcher plants, bladderworts, and the prickly pear cactus. So with that in mind, do not pitch your tent next to a carnivorous plant. You're just setting yourself up for tragedy. Right. <laughs> this trail really is great for beginners because it's so flat, it's so long, and it's such a straightforward trail. There's nothing tricky about it. The one poisonous snake that's in that area is the timber rattlesnake, and it's an endangered species. So, you know, the chances of you encountering that danger are pretty low. Apple Pie Hill is the highest point along the trail at 205 feet above sea level, or 62 meters. And the cool thing about this little high point on the trail is that there's a 60-foot fire tower at the summit. And so if it's open, you can go to the top and it shows you these panoramic views across the region. And it's kind of a little highlight of the trail. Some of our first 40 milers may be familiar with the term white blaze. They're these white rectangles that are painted on trees through the Appalachian Trail. So it kind of marks the trail and lets you know, you know, that you're on the right path. The Batona Trail also has blazes, but they're pink blazes. I have no idea how that got started. Maybe they had a can of white and a can of red and they thought, well, if we want to paint all the trees that we need to paint, we're going to mix both buckets together. 
whatever the reason, there are pink blazes on the trees. Breast cancer awareness. I guess. Maybe they did it to attract more women to the trail, but (laughs) not a lot of grown women like the color pink. I think it's like a 7 to 10-year-old girl color. Well, in a previous episode, you talked about Shrink It and Pink It. So they took the Appalachian Trail and (laughs) and they shrink it and pinked it. (laughs) Instead of a couple thousand miles, it's 53 and a half miles. Instead of white blazes, it's pink blazes. There you go. Well, that's a ton of information you've found about the trail. And I know that you don't live in New Jersey. You're living all the way across on the other side of the country. So how did you gather information about the Batona Trail? Well, I turned to the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, and the Batona Trail is managed by the Division of Parks and Forestry. So I gave them a call. Their number's online, and we'll post it on our show notes as well. I also was able to find some really great information in some forums about the New Jersey Pine Barrens. There was also a really great article from Backpacker Magazine about the Batona Trail. So as you're studying a trail, you look at all these different resources. You know, you look at the government resources, you look at what people are writing about their personal experience on the trail, and then if you can find another resource, like a book that has a chapter on the trail or a uh, a website that has an article on the trail, that's another great resource as well. So when I went to the state's website, they had a really great map and some good information on the Batona Trail. But the trail is actually not just maintained by the state of New Jersey. It's maintained by the Batona Hiking Club, and they were the ones that founded the trail. It's also maintained by the Outdoor Club of New Jersey and the state of New Jersey Park Service. So let's talk about access to the trail. As backpackers, this can be a little bit of a tricky subject for us to figure out. It's easy to find info about campgrounds where you do car camping, and it's usually easy to find info about parking permits that you may need if you're going to day hike. But sometimes it's really tough to figure out what permits you need, where you can park, and so on if you're going to be backpacking and spending multiple nights camping on the trail, not in a campground. Uh, So what did you find for access to the trail? So normally you can reserve campsites at reserveamerica.com, but when I went there, there was a notice on their site that said, Attention, Batona Trail hikers! If you're planning a multiple consecutive night stay along the Batona Trail and will be utilizing more than one campground, please make your reservation by calling, and they had a phone number there. So you would call, make the reservation, and then before you go out camping, you would need to stop by the office and pick up a permit the day that you're going to be going out. And you'll receive the fire regulations, you'll get your permit, and you'll be able to camp in the designated spots they uh, request that you not do dispersed camping. Okay, so in other words, you're going to need to decide which established campsites you're going to stay at on the trail, which means you're going to have to have mileage goals for each day, right? I mean, you're going to need to make it to the campsite that you said you would make it to, that you reserved for that night. And you can't just pitch along the trail somewhere, just off in the woods. Um, So that's important to keep in mind. You're going to have to pace yourself adequately and make it to each destination each night. When I talked to the office, they said that most people do the trail in three days, but if you're new to backpacking, don't feel pressured to pack in the miles. So the 53.5 miles can be done in five days, and no one is judging. So just make sure that you look at the map, 
and look at the mileage table that's attached to the map. We'll give you the link in the show notes and you'll be able to see where the campsites are and how many miles in between each of those campsites and then plan how many days you want to do it in. 53 miles in three days is really cruising, especially considering your first day and your last day might be a little short because you've got travel time. Boy, that's a lot of miles. I mean, you might be putting 20 miles or more on your middle day. And so, yeah, I, even though it's a nice, easy, flat trail, there's only 200 feet of elevation gain, uh, you know, that's different than what we did when we went around Mount Hood and had, I think, 9,000 cumulative feet of elevation change. But still, 40 miles, that took us all week. And even if it is flat, uh, it's a lot of miles. So stretching it out to five days, I think, is a great idea. Okay, there's one more issue to talk about with this trail, which is that technically it's a through hike, meaning that you hike from one end of the trail to the other end. Anyway, you're going to have to figure out how to get yourself to one end of the trail and then hike and you get at the other end. And now how do you get home? Any thoughts on how you're going to work that out? Well, you could always go out and back, which would make it a 107-mile hike, Wow! which would wipe most of us out. There's no shuttle service, so that means you'll probably want to take two cars. Some really brave hikers will rely on the goodness of others to let them hitch a ride. If you're going to take this approach, it makes sense to get that ride while you're still clean. So park your car at the end of the trail where you'll be ending up and see if you can get a ride to the beginning of the trail. And then you can hike for 53 and a half miles and end up at your car. You know, that's a great idea. When you first get there, you're excited to just hop on the trail and start going. But I can imagine that all week long, at least me being the kind of uh, detail-oriented warrior type all week long, I would be thinking, oh, I sure hope we can get a ride back to the trailhead when we get to the end. And so to put that worry up front and get it out of the way, then once you get to the trailhead after the hitchhiking, do that first, you get to the trailhead, and I think you're relieved and relaxed, and you know, all right, 53 and a half miles, and our car is waiting for us there. Now, if you want to know what I personally would do, I would not do hitchhiker roulette. I don't want to ask someone for a favor. I don't want to, you know, put someone out or say, hey, can you drive me 50 miles to the other side of the trail? I just don't want to do that. So I would probably um, take two cars. All right, last question. What's the water like on the trail? Uh, is there water easily accessible? Do you need to pack a lot? Uh, is it filterable? Well, this kind of surprised me, actually, because there's a hand pump at every campsite. And that's not a luxury that we're used to as backpackers. There's also bodies of water all along the trail. So I think we're pretty good with the water situation. So when you think of New Jersey, normally you think of a highly developed urban area. And I think the Batona Trail is just a really nice breath of fresh air in an area that is so, so industrial. And again, I don't know the area at all. Just I know what I've seen on TV and the internet. <laughs> but the Batona Trail provides that that wilderness experience. You know, you're not going to have a mountaintop experience. It's not going to be epic views. You'll still have freeways that are fairly close to the trail and you'll be able to see civilization. So it's not as remote as some trails that we've talked about. But still, it is a great trail to get you out of the city and a good trail for beginners to cut their teeth on. 
Well, I'm sure we have some listeners who are familiar with the Batona Trail. We'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter. What's the trail like? You know, tell us some stories or, or share some pictures of your experiences on the Batona Trail. For the backpack hack of the week, we'll teach you how to do a snot rocket. On our last family backpacking trip, one of our kids had a drippy nose, like obviously drippy. So I said, hey, do you have your bandana with you or can I get you some toilet paper for your nose? And he said this, and I'm quoting him directly. No, thanks. Daddy taught me how to blow my nose without a tissue. So thank you, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) This hack is all yours. I'm turning it over to you. Well, I learned it from my daddy. Oh, great. (laughs) You're out in the woods. You don't need to leave a piece of toilet paper out in the woods, but you need to blow your nose. So it's really easy. You just plug one side of your nose (laughs) and you blow through your nose. And that ejects anything that's obstructing that nostril of your nose. (laughs) And if you need to, you can then plug the other side of your nose and do the same thing. Done. One tip, though. It goes in the direction that you're pointing your nose. <laughs> so if you're looking down, then it's going towards your shirt. So that's the really the only gotcha is that you got to point your nose in the right direction. Uh, and, and that includes not pointing it at your hiking buddy. That would be bad, too. Or your brother. Yeah, I can see how this could go all sorts of wrong. Any tips for left-handed people? Josh, you have a special <laughs> insight into that world. I would say my tip for both the right-handed and the left-handed people is to become ambidextrous in this particular skill. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Marilyn Doan. In her spare time, she was a freelance writer, an award-winning photographer, and she also authored hiking books. And you may have seen her photography because her pictures were in Outdoor Life and Backpacker Magazine. She said, I dream of hiking into my old age. I want to be able, even then, to pack my load and take off slowly but steadily along the trail. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on the first 40 miles. And we will not put a link in today's show. Josh has a rebellious streak today. (laughs) We're not doing what you think we're going to do. I don't know. That's just weird. Pink blazes. (laughs) The truth comes out. You just think it's weird. (laughs) I just think it's odd. (laughs) All right. New Jersey, we're on your side.